Hello, and welcome to Fairy and Fantasy Class Number 14. We begin with Gowan's arrival at what looks, in some ways, very suspiciously like fairy. I want to get back to our castle. Um, Sir Gowan goes off on his quest and finds the castle, suddenly. Um, what did you make of that? This is now the fifth time we've been alone in the middle of the woods with a knight and met this kind of frontier action. Um, we've seen other fairy castles before. We've seen other fairy lords and ladies before. Um, what's going on here? What, what do you notice? What strikes you? Similarities? Differences? Robbie? Well, I, I noticed that they, uh, the description of the castle was, it was like the biggest he's ever seen or something. It fits in with what we've seen from other types of fairy castles. Good. Yeah, it is described in grand terms. It's a remarkably huge, great, fabulous castle. Um, I agree. So that is certainly we would expect that. We would expect it to be rich. We would expect it to be big. Aaron? It appears to him right after he uh, calls to God for help. And why does he call to God for help? What is he asking specifically? Do you remember? He kneels and prays. To, 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 to Jesus and to Mary. For what? He wants to celebrate Mass. It's Christmas Eve. It's Christmas Eve. And the Christmas Mass is one of the Christ Mass, which is why, you know, we call it that. The Christ Mass is one of the biggest moments of the year. I mean, it's one of the biggest religious celebrations of the year in the, in the Christian calendar. So, yeah, he, he, he wants to have some place to... He's not even saying, I'm, like, on the brink of death. Please give me a place to spend the night. It's nothing like that. It's... Tomorrow's Christmas, and I really want somewhere to celebrate Mass. And how does he find the castle after this? He crosses himself and kind of just looks up and it's there. Yeah, yeah. This certainly should set off our first little fairy alarm, right? Huge, enormous, wonderful castles, which seem to appear out of absolutely nowhere. That's something sort of fishy. But I think Aaron is very right to draw our attention to the fact that the mechanism, sort of how he's introduced to it, is quite different here than we've seen in other places. You know, we had Sir Orfeo, who comes to the threshold, like he sees them, that is the, the, the fairy people, wandering around and he follows them through the rock, right? And, and ends up at the fairy castle then, the fairy city. In Landfall, he was you know sitting alone, depressed and mud-spattered, minding his own business when they come out of the woods to him bearing basins and towels, right? So he didn't have that kind of transgressive moment where he goes and crosses a barrier. Um, Arthur is also, to a certain extent, minding his own business, and Dame Ragnall, when he's approached by Gromer Sommerjour, and then again uh, by Dame Ragnall, who, you know, offers him the answer that he's been asking everybody else for. Um, so, you know... This is the f- one of the first times that we see this moment, and it's never, that transition has never been managed before by prayer. The whole thing is being put into a religious context that we haven't seen before, I think. Yeah? Uh, it's, it's almost as if the, uh, the barriers of the work with physical geography, they appear when it's narratively convenient. Like they, they, they can see how the story is going, they show up at the right time. Well... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm tempted to put that in a different direction and say like, the story is their action, right? I mean, Sir Orfeo 
there's a story about Sir Orfeo because one day the king of fairies comes to Herodotus under the tree and initiates this thing, right? Now, he continues the story. It would have been a short story had he simply just said, oh, that's really sad, my wife is gone, and, and, and left it at that, right? He then goes and initiates the rest of the story, but, but this was a story started by the fairy king. Certainly, Triamor is the one who initiates... Um, you know, the fairy element of that story there. And so I I agree, in some ways, they're driving the narrative all the way through. This is a story about what they do. Um, I think we can, certainly we can still say that in the sense of, like, this story doesn't happen if, like, big green fellow doesn't ride into Arthur's court, uh, you know, on Christmas. But, uh, But I agree here, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different to how it... It's not quite, it's not that he summons them, right? It's not that it's working backwards exactly. They're still, I guess, appearing to him, but in, it seems to be in response to a prayer that he has made. Not to get into fairy, just somewhere where there's a chapel, you know, of any color, really, uh, in order to celebrate the Christ Mass. Um, now, more about the castle. More I, I think in terms of comparison and contrast to what we've seen with fairy places and with sort of the reception that we've seen mortals receive when they get into fairy somehow or other. One thing that really struck me is it seemed more like what I imagine a medieval castle being and less like in um, Sir Orfeo where it's like a giant disco ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is more... In, in Orfeo, it's very otherworldly. You could not wander through that city as it's described and be and respond by thinking something like, well, this is a nice place, you know. But I mean, you know, the only question is like, am I in, you know, the New Jerusalem or not? I mean, it's normal cities don't look like that. But I think Kat's right. Normal castles do look like this. It's above average. I mean, this is like an A-plus medieval castle, but it doesn't absolutely scream fairy from every stone like the other bright, shining, radiant, paved with gold fairy city did. Jordan? I could be wrong with this, but isn't the fact that it's surrounded by two miles of forest in every direction and really is that kind of on the mountain something you normally go castle there? I mean, if you had to point a stone in the middle of the forest and bring it over there, it is true, it's very uncommon for a medieval castle to be totally surrounded by forest for exactly that reason. Usually you cut down the forest for quite a ways around it, even if because you want to make it harder for people to be able to get timber, which is very useful when you're trying to attack a castle. You can use timber for lots of things in castle assault. Uh, and having some right there next to the walls also not very handy either. So no, that is very unusual. Um, and... He is in the absolute middle of nowhere, which is another reason why he's quite surprised to find not only a castle, but really such a marvelous castle. Although I should be careful. Marvelous is actually exactly what it isn't, apart from its appearance. It's, it's great. It's very nice. And, even, and the people are rich, right? I mean, we get descriptions of gems and nice clothes and stuff like that that we've gotten. But again less over the top than, say, Triamor, for instance, right? I mean, the lady of the castle is, she has some things in common with Triamor. She's very, very lovely, 
um, and she's very richly dressed, and she doesn't wear an overabundance of clothing, but she is neither as rich nor as beautiful nor as topless as Triamor when, when he first meets her, right? Or even, even afterwards. Um, it's very similar to the things that we've seen, but kind of scaled back. And just it, we also get a really ugly woman, too, right? They come in hand in hand. The extraordinarily beautiful woman and the noticeably ugly woman. But neither of them are quite preternaturally beautiful, as with Triamor, or preternaturally ugly, as with Ragnall, right? And I think that that's interesting. It's, it does, I think it should, you know, kind of send off, set off our fairy alarms, but not as, but not completely unequivocally. When the Green Knight walks into the court, everyone's like, whoa, no questions here, right? Something is up here. Gowan doesn't have that reaction when he goes to the castle. I mean, this is great. This is fantastic. What an answer to prayer. I've been given this place to celebrate the Christ Mass, and wow, what fantastic hosts. What a beautiful castle. Oh, and what a lovely lady. Isn't this great? And, and my, my destination is two miles away. Wow. But not, whoa, fairy, green guy, right? Green guy inviting us to decapitate him. Something is not right here. Danger, right? I mean, that's not his reaction when he goes into the castle. Again, it's remarkable, but not completely over the top. It's, you know, I think a little bit more in scale to some extent. They also, you notice how much time they spend laughing in this castle? They have a great time in this castle. This is obviously a great place to live and work, right? The Lord sounds almost like demented at times. He's just like, he can't say anything without bursting into laughter and hugging people. He is like the most jovial guy you'll ever meet. Breaking out into spontaneous drinking games, like the throw the hat on the spear game. Right? You notice that? There's a spear up on the wall and you throw your hat up onto it. I didn't say explicitly that this is a drinking game, though they've been doing a lot of drinking, but I can't imagine there isn't drinking involved uh, in this game. I mean, they, they, they're just, he has so much fun. Um, there's also a moment, uh, if, uh, if, you will, if you will indulge me. I've been trying not to do this too often, but I just can't restrain myself on this occasion. Uh, I'm going to make a Tolkien reference. In, uh, in The Fellowship of the Ring, when Sam and Pippin and Frodo are walking across the Shire and meet the elves and are taken in by the elves uh, and feasted, and the hobbits are astounded at the quality of the food, and it's really amazing, and the elves are all laughing at how much they're enjoying this and say to them, this is but poor fare, right? Uh, you know, we, we apologize for this. And if, we, if ever you are our guest in our homes, we'll treat you better. And Sam, you know, responds by saying, it seems to me good enough for a birthday party, right? Um, I always, well, I always think of that moment when I get to this point in this poem, and I always think of this poem when I get to that part in The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, notice that the, the people in the castle make almost exactly the same joke uh, to Sir Gawain when they take him in and they give him his first meal. 
which is fish. You will notice very elaborately, sumptuously prepared fish. They're still fasting, uh, which is why they're eating fish. Eating fish counts as fasting, you see, in medieval diet. There's no meat, um, so it's practically not a meal. And, uh, but it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's so good. We get this, this detailed description of how really wonderful this fish is that he's being served. And Gowan remarks on it. This is on page 80. Let's see what, line uh, 894. The Freika, that's Gowan. Called it a feast full fraily and after, full hendily, quin all the hathalas rahited him at honours as hender, this penance nuye taka, and eft it shall amenda, that morn much mirth con maka, for winning his head that wenda. Gowan's like, oh, thank you for this wonderful feast. And they're like, oh, please. Like, we, we apologize for, like, the penance we are forcing you to endure with this poor, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll feed you, we'll, we'll make up for it later on with a real meal. It's, it's almost exactly the same movement. Um, thing to remember, Tolkien's elves are fairies. It's the same world. And that kind of encounter that Frodo and Sam uh, and Pippin have in the Shire is very much like the kind of encounters that we've seen people having in these stories, where there you are off alone or in a small party in the woods, and all of a sudden there are these fairies who take you in and give you this nice meal. Um, No scantily clad women in that situation, but uh, otherwise very similar. Now, I want to go ahead to the second game that Gowan has offered. Of course, we talked about the terms of the decapitation game, right? Fun for the whole family. Um, A second game is offered him, right? A wager he's given. This is after he's decided to stay. Uh, You know, they have, it's Christmas Eve when he comes, and he has his, you know, penitential feast, and then on the morning they go to Mass and they celebrate the Christ Mass. That's where he first sees the lady. She comes to, you know, he goes to chapel that night, but he doesn't see her. She's in a private pew. Um, the lord and lady of a castle usually have a private place, actually often up like in a balcony area or even behind a closed wall um, where they observe the service. Um, you can see this still in a lot of uh, castles um, uh, over in England and Wales if you go there. Um, the chapels are pretty cool. Um, I think they're pretty cool anyway. Uh, and so anyway, so she's off in her private, her private little thing and he doesn't see her. He doesn't see her until the Christmas, the Christ Mass. And then she appears and we get the description of her and the, and the ugly old woman walking in together. And, um, and then we have the feast afterwards, the big feast, the big Christmas feast, and everyone's really happy. But that evening, Sir Gowan says, I'm sorry, I've got to go, right? And this is when he receives... The reassurance, oh, no, no, you don't have to go. Green Chapel, you're looking for that? Yeah, yeah, it's like less than two miles away. Um, so you can stay all the way through New Year's morning and then take off and still make your appointment. And at that, at that point, his host, his very jovial, flamboyant host, says, not only will I host you, let's have some fun. What's his plan, the host? Stephanie? Yes, he's going to go hunting. That's his plan. I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm going to go hunting. You stay here and relax. You've been on the road for a long time. You're, you're, you're doubtless tired. You've not been eating much nor sleeping very well lately. You know, like no offense, but I can tell. So, you know, sit, stay in bed, eat, rest yourself up so you'll be all set for your appointment on New Year's. Meanwhile, I'm going to go hunting. And then, yeah, yeah, so here's the deal. Whatever I get, I'll give you. And whatever you get, you'll give me. Har, har, har. Now, what do you think about this? 
What's, what's your reaction to this? My reaction was it made me think of the first game that he accepted because my reaction to it was, wait, what? Like, you want you want him to give you what he earns, but he's going to be in bed all day, so what what is there to earn? And, like, with the first game, you're just like, well, you're asking for a death stroke. Like, what? It's just both are confusing. Yeah, they both seem like trick questions in very similar ways. You've just said, why don't you stay in bed all day and do nothing, and then you're asking me to give you what I earn, what I win, like what stuff I get? What are you talking about? Um, just as it doesn't make sense to say, I kill, you kill me first and then I'll kill you afterwards, right? It just that both are, seem strangely illogical. Both seem like there must be a trick here. What's Gowan's response, did you notice? How does he read this. I think he, he has a read on it. I think it, it does, Christine's right, it doesn't make sense in the terms that he offers it, but I think he does make sense of it. Will, what do you think? Well, it sense Yeah, it's, it's, I'm glad you're very nice to do this, right? Um, this is uh, page 94, the beginning of that stanza there. Yet Fira, quoth the Freke, a forward way marker. Notice, remember, that's the same word that he used in the, you know, that in the previous thing, right? Um, when the Green Knight is reviewing with Sir Gowan, like, let's go over the forwards again, right? The terms of the deal. A forward way marker. Caught so ever he win in the ward, hit worth is to yours. And caught check so ye a cheva, chounge me there forna. Sweta, swap away so, swara with troutha. Quether, luda, so limp, lair, other better. And he's, so he's recognizing, however uneven the exchange may be, right? It's fine. Let's agree to do it. Be God, quoth Gowan the Gorda, he ground there till, and that thou list for to like life it may think is. Now, Armitage translates this, which I like. I find it pleasing that you favor such fun. But I think Gowan is saying more than, you know, you're really a fun guy. I like that in you. He says, and that you list for to like, life it me thinkest. Life means dear, precious, valued. I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's lovely that you want to do this thing. What thing is he, is it, does it, I mean, how is, can, can you see how he's taking this? Is he genuinely valuing what he's? Maybe, well, he's, he would value what, I mean, that, that presumably he's off hunting. The Lord is, in fact, going to get some stuff to swap. Is it like an act of charity? It kind of sounds like, without saying that. Basically, this sounds like it amounts to a gift without saying I'm going to give you lots of gifts. A, a host often would give his guest gifts. And this is kind of a f- fun and playful, very in keeping with the, what, the behavior he's seen from the host, um, but also kind of understated way of doing this. Instead of you know, making you indebted 
by saying, oh, let me heap gifts upon you and then make you feel like you have to pay me back or, or like, you know, I, you're receiving charity from me. I'm just going to call it a game. We'll call it a wager. We'll call it a bargain. You give me what, oh, you didn't get anything? Of course you didn't. You stayed home. Here's what I got, right? And it amounts to a gift. And Gowan seems to be taking it that way. Oh, well, that's, that's really, that's very nice. That's, that's really very nice. Sure, sure, let's play. So since it's coming from this this guy, since he's so jovial, he's just kind of like, oh, this seems within character, but if, like, Arthur were to do this, it'd be like, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, Arthur, Arthur's certainly different. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to have quite, nobody, really, uh, outside of a mental institution has quite so much fun as the host does, I think. But, um, yeah, so, so yes, I mean, Arthur wouldn't, it wouldn't be quite the same thing. Um, there's very little sense of, uh, the, the host at this castle um, who hasn't been named yet, right? Nobody's been given names yet in this castle. We have the host, we have the lady, and we have the old ugly woman, uh, and, uh, you know, that's the porter and other people. Um, they're going to be given names later on, but um, I always prefer not to call them by their names until they're given them because I think it's significant that we're still dealing with nameless people to this point. Um, it's only really going to be after the fact that we're going to be told in retrospect what their names were all the way along, and I think that's actually interesting. Anyway, yeah, this is in keeping with the treatment that he's gotten. It, it makes a kind of sense. What's, what's at stake here? Of course, as it turns out, what's at stake here? It turns out that this is more than just the cloak for a gift. What's at stake? Jordan? Well, it's very much a, a, the, 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 there is a lot more saying, just like with the axe. It wasn't a hate the axe, it's just a little decapitation. It's, right. uh, it's you being put in kill in both cases, and that's not readily available, readily noticeable. It's honestly uh, he, being put in kill like his life was before. He's like, hey, come cheat on your host. Well, you have, you have the wit to avoid insulting your host's lady. Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky, and I think both of those things, Jordan, that you just emphasized, I think are really important. On the one hand, there's one very simple element of it, it turns out, right? Um, The test is, don't sleep with your host's wife. She's going to come to you very invitingly. Hint, Sir Gowan, you should say no. Giving in and sleeping with the wife would count as failure of this test. That seems pretty obvious. But Jordan is right to say there's more at stake there than just saying no, right? I mean, he doesn't say, which he could say, on morning number one, you know, be gone, vile temptress, and start throwing things at her. That would seem safer, right? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't even do the more, uh, the less aggressive, but also active um, approach that, say, Joseph takes in the book of Genesis, right? When his, his master's wife comes after him, what does he do? Run, right? <laughs> he runs. He takes off and runs. And she's like grabbing him and, and he takes his, he has to like, you know, she's got him by the shirt and he takes his shirt off and runs off shirtless or possibly more or less. But anyway, he's, he's out of there, right? Leaving his garment in her hand. He doesn't even take that approach. Of course, Gavin's in a little more awkward situation. What's his situation? 
He's naked, I think. He's naked in bed. Yeah, medieval people didn't wear a lot to bed, okay? Um, so this is why he's lying there and say, he quickly suggests on the first morning, you know, when she says, I have you my prisoner here, I have you bound in the bed. Um, you know, like she's quickly like using the like tie him up language and, and it's like a little bit true. He's like, I can't get up, I can't leave without things getting indecorous pretty quickly. Um, and so he, he proposes, he's like, ah, yes, lady, I am your prisoner. Um, pardon me, and I've got, I've got an idea. Why don't you let me get up and get dressed, and then we'll continue the conversation. And she's like, no, no, no. No, I've got you right here. And this is what happens every morning, all three mornings, and he's lying there, and he can't get up. So, but it's not just that he's trapped in this way. And again, Joseph wasn't thinking about decency when he leaves his garment behind and flees. Um, but what else is at stake for him? And this is very explicit. What else he's worried about, right? Well, he did a kind of spontaneously swear fealty to the lady when he saw her the day before. So, do we mean anything like, shall we be gone while <laughs> could be seen as a violation of his oath? Yeah, at the very least, very inconsistent. Not to mention insulting. I mean, she's being pretty forward here. We can't get around that fact, right? I mean, she's sneaking into his room and offering him very open invitations. I mean, very open invitations. She says things like, me course is yours. My body is yours. Okay, thank you. I mean, that's uh, no further questions about her intention. And she even, you know, keeps, makes references to like, you know, while my Lord, my Lord is away all day, I've locked the door. Ha-ha! I mean, it's, it's, very, it's very explicit. But he doesn't, and in his situation, can't say no. Think back to the five fives. What does maintaining all five of his virtues look like in this situation? Courtesy is important. Yeah. Courtesy is one of the five fives. As well as? Plainness. Yeah, the other one that alliterates with it. Cleanness and cortesia. Can he escape this? Again, it's kind of a no-brainer, can he escape this without actually sleeping with the wife? But the difficult thing, can he escape this with both his cleanness and his cortesia intact? That is a narrow line to walk. I mean, I mentioned before how those two things, well, it would be a, a, a serious piece of understatement to say that those things don't always go hand in hand. Those things, at times, seem to be openly uh, in contradiction to each other. Um, He is now placed in this situation, which is a really difficult test. Can you do both? And notice his anxiety to do both. His desire to fend off her advances is pretty clear. But equally clear is his desire to do that without insulting her or saying anything rude. And he's very gentle, and he's very deft. Remember, she makes an accusation at the end of their first meeting together. Remember what she accuses him of? And he's taken aback, Mac? She says that uh, his refusing to kiss her was very polite. Yes. He defended her by not doing that. Yeah, and yes. And do you remember how she articulates that? Her being offended? Don't you feel like you can't be waiting. We wouldn't be left in a room with a 
beautiful woman and not make a movie. Who are you? Right. Who are you really? Right? Who are you and what have you done with Gawain? I mean, that's, that's, that's exactly the joke that she makes. Right? Um, she's like, great performance, imposter, but obviously you're not really Gawain. And he seems worried. He's like, what? Wherefore? Right? I, 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 what? How did I fail? Crap! You know, I thought I was doing well. And she says, well, you haven't asked me for a kiss. And exactly as Emily says, there's no way Sir Gawain, not the Sir Gawain we've all heard of, there is no way that Sir Gawain would be alone in the room with a lady, you know, not bragging, like me, and not even ask for a kiss. And how does Gawain get himself out of that? Like, oh, okay, I'll kiss you now. Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, you're right, that's fair, that's fair. I'll kiss you. Why didn't he do that before? It wasn't a request. She didn't, I mean, he only does it when she pushes him, when she explicitly, like, yells at him, well, not yells at him, but, you know, uh, upbraids him with not kissing her. Then he's like, well, okay, now he's in the place where he has to either say, I ain't kissing you, which is rude, or he has to kiss her, right? And he decides, well, okay, I'll kiss her. But why, so why didn't he kiss her before? Even, you know, it's like part of his like, well, maybe we'll start this off with a kiss, and, but then maybe that will be okay and we can sort of not move any further. Jordan? He's putting himself in the position of aggressor then. Even if the situation, even if he's already, you know, moving towards that, he would be initiating his own acceptance of that. Yeah. He says, you shall kiss at your commandment. He says, you know, okay, your your call is entirely your kiss, not mine. Yeah. Good. He does say, I'm just, I'm submitting to you. As, Jordan, as you pointed out, he promised he would obey her before. Was it Mac? Was it you that pointed out? Okay. There was somebody in the background. Yeah. As Mac pointed out, he had already agreed that he was going to serve her, that he would, that he would, that he would be her knight. So yeah, now, I, I, oh, if you command me to kiss you, I'm your prisoner here. If you command me to kiss you, then I will kiss you. A kiss was a kind of commitment. You know, the kiss has always been the gateway to other things uh, in this kind of game. And it's a, it's a commitment. Um, in earlier courtly love literature, um, here I'm thinking specifically of Andreas Capuanus's Art of Courtly Love, which is a Latin treatise, which I'm almost sure is a joke, uh, about love and the rules of love. Uh, and it contains uh, wild pieces of medieval humor, very medieval humor, uh, such as, for instance, court cases, about uh, love affairs, that is, you know, people will bring a certain case to court. Um, in one instance is, she kissed me, but now she's trying to say no. Now she says she wants nothing else to do with me, but she did give me the kiss of promise. Is she now obligated to sleep with me? And the court convenes. It's always a court of ladies who decides these questions in love. And the court of ladies comes, and their judgment is, yes, actually, in fact, you are obligated to sleep with him because you've given him the kiss of promise. Um, Anyway, the kiss, it's a big deal. Has Gowan failed? Has Gowan failed? Or does Gowan fail in accepting, in giving the kiss? Even at her commandment? How does he get out of it? 
This is, for my money, the most brilliant aspect of this entire part of the poem. It is so good. Taylor, what does he say? Just he swear fealty to her, in which case it would be considered a kiss of good faith rather than romantic. Well, it is true that, see, but the kiss of promise is a fealty thing. Like, it's... That's one of the reasons why it was a big deal, because it was modeled on the, on the, the kiss of fealty. So when, when the lover and his lady kiss, it's a sign that now a bond has been established. You know, now sort of we've metaphorically entered into this agreement. That, that's why, by the way, the court decided in that, in that way, the love court decided in that way. No, you, you'd already entered the bond. You'd agreed to, to basically take him as your vassal. She's the Lord. He's the vassal always in the courtly love thing. Um, so, you know, you can't renege now um, on the agreement into which you've entered. So, it is true that it is like the kiss of fealty, but from a courtly love perspective, that's, that puts him in the awkward position. Now, okay, he didn't, he didn't sleep with her, but, um, but it's awkward. There's some, some, some serious awkwardness has been entered into. Emma? Yeah. Yeah. That is the amazingly brilliant touch. You must keep in mind when the Lord comes home and says, Here are the like 50 haunches of venison that I have gotten today. I mean, they just slaughter half the forest's deer on this day. Uh, and then butcher it lovingly and with great detail. Did you enjoy that, by the way? See, now, take notes. Now, you know, if ever you find yourself in the position to slaughter deer, you've got the phones. A cat didn't need this, I know. Uh, <laughs> nor Kelly. The two of them were like, please, yeah, they're amateurs, the way they were describing it. Uh, but, <laughs> but anyway, um, and so he comes home with all these haunches of venison and says, okay, now what did you get? And Gowan kisses him, mouth to mouth. Gowan kisses him mouth to mouth. You have to imagine a mouth to mouth kiss. That is almost certainly what it would have been. Um, and you can t- even by the physical description of it, he grabs him by the neck and kisses him. This is not like a little European, I'm kissing the air near your cheek kind of deal. He kisses him mouth to mouth. But this is, as Emily suggests, this is a kiss of fealty. Um, it is. No, it's not formal fealty. I mean, he's not like taking him politically as his lord. He's still Arthur's knight and everything. But that transformation within the terms of the game that the lord has established, what he gained that day was a kiss. What seemed at the time to be a kiss of love, which would be an act of unfaithfulness and disloyalty to him. But by faithfully keeping his part of the bargain and transferring that kiss to him at the end of the day, that kiss now is like a kiss of loyalty, right? Reversing the apparent disloyalty. And now it's not his anymore, right? He received it. If he had kept it, now he would have been sort of bound to her. But it's not his anymore. Now he's given it to the Lord, her husband. So like the, the, the erotic connection gets transferred back where it belongs and transformed in the process into a pledge of loyalty. I'm not betraying you. Uh, You are my good Lord. I am swearing fealty to you by the transfer of the kiss your wife gave me. It's so brilliant. And the knight loves it. Like, oh, that was fantastic. Right? And then he asks him, where'd you get that? And Gowan says, 
said, well, I didn't have to tell you that. Yeah, not part of the deal. Not part of the deal. No, no, I don't have to tell you. And the host responds, he laughs, of course, because he always does, right? He thinks this is great. Um, I mean, of course, the question remains, where else would he get it? Uh, I mean, what, from the old ugly one? Probably not. Uh, there aren't so many candidates. But, hey, you know, there's a, it, yeah. I have a question about that. So, by giving him the kiss, would the Lord automatically know that's a kiss of, like, a kiss of fealty? It's one of the, you know, I've said before that, you know, in the Middle Ages, people were much less squeamish about kissing people on the lips than we are. I mean, there are really very few occasions on which we do that. There were many more in which they did. But there weren't so many more that um, this is the kind of gesture one would just, like, randomly expect from one's guest. Like, hi, host, good hunting. I mean, that's (laughs) not nor... That would... You would kiss... I mean, like other times when you would have a mouth-to-mouth, uh, you know, male-male kiss like that would be, you would probably kiss your father on the lips. Uh, it, it would be, kissing and hugging was a, an expression of affection that would have been con- sort of considered normal, friends possibly, um, but, uh, and, and fealty. So, I mean, I think his reaction to it shows he's not thinking... Ah, you are now my vassal, right? It's not, he's not taking it literally in that sense. His response is, well, that was fun. Remember, it's all a game. It's all a game that he's proposed. I was, like, wondering, like, if he knows, like, what kind of, like, kiss that was, then, like, logically, there's only so many people in the castle you could have gotten that kiss from. So, like, it might be easy to square down, like, but since it's a game, like, and he's in on it, it not that that's a big deal. Yeah, well, but... In one sense, I would say, that's sort of another way in which this whole situation seems weird, right? Seems like a trick. Um, Why do you keep leaving me in the house alone with your pretty and scantily clad wife every day, right? And then every night you come home and I have to kiss you more times each day, right? the whole situation is a little bit odd. As you say, I mean, he, he, he keeps it from him, but it's not hard to guess, especially since, again, remember the lady's reaction. You're Sir Gowan, right? And we know what that means. Love language, right? You are the expert on courtly love. This, as soon as they find out who he is, that's what they said. This is his rep, right? I mean, he is, he's like, ooh, now we shall find out. Now we will see true, authentic love language demonstrated for us by the master himself. But Mr. Jovial Lord of the Castle, his plan is, the knight who is most famous in the entire world for his skill as a wooer, I think what I'll do is I'll leave him alone all day, every day in the castle with my wife. That's my plan. And then I'll come home and he'll say that he's been getting kisses. And the next morning I'll blithely keep continuing to go hunting. Yeah, something is weird. Something is weird. But something has always been weird. Something's been weird from the very beginning. It never adds up. And at the least what it seems, and this seems to be even even consciously, Gowan is recognizing this is a kind of test here. 
I have to be careful how it's... There's clearly a wrong answer here, and not just the obvious wrong answer of sleeping with a wife. Um, How can I be faithful to all of the things that I believe in, to all of my five virtues, and also be good to the wife and keep faith with the husband? I mean, he is very self-consciously treading a very narrow path And it's not hard to figure out that this is a contrived situation. Um, The whole thing has been contrived, almost transparently contrived from the beginning. Um, On the third day, the wife ratchets up the sexual pressure, right? We get a special description of her clothes or the lack thereof that day. Right? She comes wearing this fetching off the shoulder piece, right? And um, pushes him harder. We get a little narrator's warning, right? Our knight is in great peril this day, unless Mary preserves his knight, her knight, rather, right? And she pushes him, again, the narrator tells us, she pushes him to the point where he can't, and he's been sort of deftly, there's fencing language that's used. He's been parrying her approaches so that, you know, he, he's still, he's speaking lovingly and courteously and complimenting her and, and, and using that banter without promising anything, without giving in. She pushes him to the point where he can't do that anymore, where he has to either say yes or say no flat out, which he's never done yet. Do you remember how she does it? Remember what question she asks him that finally pushes him explicitly to say no to her? Do you have anyone else? Yes, yes. Who is your lady? You must have another lady that you're keeping faith to. This is the only way she can parse this, right? I mean, this... You know, you, me, the opportunity. The only excuse that I can see is that there must be another lady that you have that you're keeping faith to. What does he say? No, no, I don't have anyone. Nor, and he says his, his one blunt thing, nor do I plan to for quite some time yet. <clears throat> He's... Letting her down as easily as possible, but finally explicitly saying, no, no, I'm not, I'm just, that's not where this is headed, no. He does have a lady, though. Um, when you're a knight fighting in a tournament and you're in trouble, and you need a reserve of strength. Emily, what do you do? You look at your beautiful lady who is gazing down upon you, and you are filled with a new strength to overcome. This works even if she's not into you, by the way. Um, As long as she's physically present, it's fine. And there are lots of wonderful moments, like whether it's Sir Palamides gaining this sort of tragic strength from the love look that 
is old is giving towards somebody else, but he's like kind of in the line of vision and can briefly fantasize that it's him, right? Sir Palabides is so sad. Or, or the highly comical version that Chrétien de Troyes gives, right? When, when, when Lancelot is fighting for Guinevere and, you know, and he's fighting and, and, and he sees her and is so transfixed that he stops and is like the guy's beating on him and he's staring up and then he's fighting backwards behind his back so he can keep... And then somebody says, hey, stupid, go around to the other side so you can see her and fight in front of you at the same time. And Lancelot's like, oh, I never thought of that, right? And he stands over here. Fantastic, fantastic. When Sir Gawain is in trouble, in battle, what does he do, Max? He looks at the image of Mary on the inside of the he looks at the image of the Virgin Mary in the inside of his shield. And from that, he gets force and strength to overcome in battle, we're told. Um, he has a lady. I know it sounds really hokey to say the Virgin Mary is his lady, but she is. I mean, that's, that's what we're told there. And we were just reminded of it. Remember, unless Mary protect her knight, he was going to fall that day, we were told. Our narrator wants us to know Gowan is actually really tempted here. This is not, like, his resisting her advances is not trivial. It's not just, like, how can I let her down gently? That's hard. That is hard. But we're, we, the poem seems to want us to believe, to recognize that this is not easy for him. He actually does want to give in. But he says no. He is, remains faithful to his lady, which means not having connections with anyone. Now, one thing you might ask is, if you have a knight who's devoted to the Virgin Mary, where did he get his reputation for love language? Why does everyone come and say, ooh, Sir Gareth, the player himself is here, right? He doesn't sound like much of a player, actually. Well, one answer to that, and I don't know how satisfying an answer you'll find it, but this poem is being written... I was about to say at the end of, that would be rash, in the middle of a long romance tradition that has been going on for some time. We saw, we've already seen one instance of the Sir Gawain romance tradition. And even we were looking at the end of the Dame Ragnall story with her departure and the references that we get to his later career and previous career there, this sort of sense that the author of that story feels the pressure, the narrative pressure, to indicate this is only one episode in the long, glorious, many-storied career of Sir Gawain, which almost all include um, love adventures. He has other ladies. This is why, again, the author of Dame Ragnall at the end is insisting he loved her more than he ever loved anybody else. I'm not saying he didn't ever love anybody else, but more than anybody else, he loved Dame Ragnall, right? Um, because, yeah, he does love lots of other people. Again, Crétien de Troyes is fantastic on this. You know, like, Sir Gawain and Crétien de Troyes, like, leave him alone in a room with a lady for five minutes. Uh, and literally for five minutes, and they're off by the window murmuring quiet things together, uh, right, which Lancelot interrupts by trying to throw himself out that window. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, it's... Um, I apologize for all the tantalizing references to Crétien de Troyes. It is uh, so much fun. Um, anyway, he passes the test. Next time, we'll start by looking at the final movement, right? When he finally lets her down for good and all, she has the one last test to give, right? The gift exchange thing, 
and I want to look at what's going on there. I also want to look at the thing that we've ignored other than the one brief reference, which is the hunting scenes. Why the hunting scenes? Is there a reason why we interrupt our love language episodes with prolonged descriptions of dismemberment? Uh, and what is the effect of this? Um, you could do a fantastic cutscene in a film version. I mean, it would be absolutely brilliant. It just begs for it. Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll look at that some, too, next time. Thank you. See you on Friday. Okay. In the next class, we'll finish the poem. My students wrote their first paper between this class and the next one. You, of course, are not required to write the paper. But if you want to think about the topic, here it is. In the end, the Green Knight reveals that Morgan Le Fay was behind this whole incident. How do you understand Morgan's goals and motivations? And how do those fit with what this poem has shown us of fairy and its relationship with the human realms? Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.